Well, the chair tried to leave me. <laughs> Wilt thou go away also? <laughs> it's good to be with you today. Appreciate Brother McClarty asking me to preach this day. I count it a great honor. He is a very great man of the Word of God as far as I'm concerned. Faithful to the Lord and I know that he desires for you to hear the truth of God whether you want to hear it or not. <laughs> because let's face it, if the truth doesn't set you free, a lie won't help you. Amen. If you care to, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I'm sure that everyone probably remembers what you were doing 15 years ago this day. Fifteen years ago today, I was in a motel on the east side of St. Louis, or on the Illinois side, preparing to go to the inaugural meeting of the Sovereign Grace Baptist Fellowship. I got up early in the morning and thought, well, I'll catch a little bit of the news before I go to breakfast. And I turned the news on and I saw... World Trade Center in smoke, and I said, I don't want to see a movie, I want to catch the news. So I began to flip the channels, and it finally dawned on me what had happened. As long as my mind is active, I probably will never forget that, that moment. And uh, we need to continue praying that God might be pleased in His mercy to save us poor sinners. Yes. It doesn't matter what our nationality and our religious beliefs are. We're sinners. We need to pray that God would have mercy on us. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, I direct your attention to verses that you are very familiar with if you've been in church any time at all. Beginning with verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness, rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. As we look at these verses... I trust that the familiarity of them will not be a barrier to your understanding them. <laughs> you say, what? How often have we read certain portions of God's Word and we say we know what that is and we begin to, to read it and we just kind of skim over it and we forget what's really there? That happens more often than we'd like to admit. Whenever we're studying the Word of God, context makes a big difference. When I was 27 years old, I was in my first pastorate in Illinois. I was invited to one of our family's home 
after the Sunday evening service uh, for some refreshments, and so I went. And there I found that their mother was there who hated the doctrine of grace. She hated it. Well, it was a setup. Now, I'm not very smart, but I do know this. You never attack mama. <laughs> you never do that. So this lady started in on me, and we were talking about the Scripture, and we uh, kept insisting that she put the Scripture she was using within their context, and every time she would do that, it didn't say what she was saying it was saying. And finally, she came to the last verse that she was going to use on me, and she looked at me and she said, I suppose you want this in its context as well. And I said, it helps. It helps to have it in its context. Many times the context will mess up really good preaching. <laughs> I found that out from my professor of theology, Dr. Peter Conley. He told a story in class one day, and I'm not going to go through the story, but he said, men, he said, if you'll tell it right, you'll bring the audience to tears. He said, but theologically it stinks. It's not right and it's not good. And how many times are we caught up with emotion rather than the truth of God's word and the natural emotion that the word of God will bring into our life? And so as we look at these verses this morning, maybe into the afternoon, I don't know. I have some of the folks here that I pastored and one of them wrote to me and he said, I understand you're preaching on Sunday. He said, we'll be there. He said, but don't go into a 500-part series. He said, everybody's going to leave, and you're going to wonder why we left. So I, I will not go into a 500-part series, but we will spend what time God has determined that we should spend in this passage. As you look at the context of this passage, I believe it is needful to go back to John chapter 1 and to realize that in chapter 1, we are introduced by John to Jesus Christ as the Word of God. And in verse 2 of chapter 1, we find out that Jesus Christ is God. In verse 3, we find out that all creation was made by Him. In verse 4, we find out that all true life is in Him. Verse 5, we find that man lost the light of life, that life of God, and now he's in darkness. Verse 11, we find that Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. Verse 12, we find that those who received him, he gave power to become the sons of God. And those who were made sons of God, according to verse 13, were made so not by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. This one who is the Word. This one who is God incarnate. We find ourselves being made sons of God by Him. Not by what we do. Verse 14, John clearly declares the incarnation 
of Jesus Christ. He also points out in verse 17 that law came by Moses. Grace came by Jesus Christ. But as you go back to verse 6 through 8, we are introduced to John the Baptist. In verse 15, John bears witness as to who Christ is. In verse 29, John declares that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. We also find in chapter 1 that Jesus begins to call disciples to himself. Then in chapter 2, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. We find him at the Mary's Feast in the Cain of Galilee, where he turns water into wine. In chapter 3, we find Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night and saying unto him, Good Master, no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus looks to him and says, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, Well, how, how can that be? How can a man be born when he's old? How, how, does that, how does that happen? And asking the question of how a man can be born again, Nicodemus is acknowledging man's lack of union with God. If man were already in union with God, Nicodemus would have confronted that statement of Jesus that a man must be born again. But he does not confront that statement. He just simply says, how? Jesus tells Nicodemus that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Immediately after telling Nicodemus of the sacrifice of himself for sinners, Jesus tells Nicodemus of God's mercy and love to his people. Verse 18 of our text tells us, that Jesus did not come to condemn us. This word that was made flesh was not made flesh to condemn us. The word condemn simply means, as, as it is used here, to inflict the penalty upon us. Jesus did not come into this world to inflict the penalty of sin upon us. It's very important to understand that within the context of what we are studying. To understand this statement of Jesus, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden and see what happened to Adam and Eve. God gave Adam control over the garden with the exception of one tree that was in the midst of the garden. As you know, God created Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. God created Eve from his rib and they were in the garden and God had given a command to Adam. There's one tree in the midst of the garden. It's mine. 
Don't eat the fruit of it. The day you eat of that fruit is the day you die. But the day came when the serpent beguiled Eve. She ate the fruit. She gave that fruit to Adam and he ate. He freely disobeyed the command of God. And when he did so, his eyes were opened and Eve's eyes were opened. And the scripture says they realized they were naked. And they did that which they had never done before. They hid themselves from God. Now that's very instructive. Because every human being does their best to hide themselves from God. Apart from God giving mercy unto them. Oh, how terrible it is. That Adam partook of that forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. And the consequences of their disobedience is upon the entire human race to this day. I have a question for you. Do we disobey God to become sinners? Or do we disobey God because that is the nature we are born with? We disobey God because we are born with a nature opposed to God and set apart from God. It's called the sin nature. And that is why we will continue doing what Adam tried to do in hiding ourselves from God. Why do you suppose it is that human beings do not readily receive what God has done for them in Christ? You would think with this good news that every human being would immediately come to Christ. They have no desire. They're in darkness. They hate the truth. You say, well, how is this proven in Scripture? Well, let's note what the Scripture declares concerning a man and his disobedience, being born as a sinner. In Psalm 51 and verse 5, David said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about his mother having an illicit affair. He's talking about the nature of man. And he has that same nature, shapen in iniquity. In Psalm 58, 3, the scripture says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. In Genesis 5, 3, the scripture says, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image and called his name Seth. Well, what was Adam's likeness? He was a sinner. What was his image? He was a sinner, separated from God. Job, in chapter 14 and verse 4 says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. John 3, 6 says, 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. I have a quick question for you before we continue on. Do you have just the natural birth? If so, you are still of the flesh according to scripture. And you have no part with God. Are you born of the spirit? If so, then you have union with God through his son, Jesus Christ. (coughs) Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 tells us, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that some have sinned? No, it's not what it says. All have sinned. All have sinned. Ephesians 2, 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and whereby nature, the children of wrath, even as others. Jeremiah the prophet put it this way in chapter 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Oh, how many times we begin to think that we're doing pretty good in life. How many times we think we have fooled everyone. Everybody thinks we're just so in love with God in Christ. And we fool ourselves to think the same thing. Because I mean, you know, our parents took us to church, right? Now my, I've told our folks, my, my mother took me to church and I was enrolled in the cradle roll. I don't know if you can find those uh, records from back in the dark ages or not, but nevertheless, I was enrolled in the cradle roll. I, I was raised up in the church. Every Sunday school teacher was glad for promotion Sunday because they could get rid of me to the next teacher. <laughs> they were glad for that. It wasn't until I was 17 that God was pleased to have mercy on my soul. But everybody thought I was a really good Christian. Everybody I went to school with thought I was such a great Christian. Oh, how deceitful the heart is. How desperately wicked it is. Do you understand how that your heart can deceive you in your relationship with God? Point, in fact, Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel, comes to Christ and says, no man can do what you do except God be with him. And Jesus immediately said, except a man be born again. That's kind of a strange way of answering that question. Except a man be born again. Nicodemus said, what are you talking about? His heart deceived him and he was a religious teacher. You might say this morning, I know the word of God. As a matter of fact, I can probably quote more than you can, and you probably can now. But does that mean you know God? 
You might be able to argue theology, but does that mean you know God? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately, desperately wicked. And because of our natural birth, Adam's sin, we find ourselves to be enmity with God. That is, we have a hatred for God. Why? Why do we have that hatred? Well, the scripture tells us that the wicked are estranged from the womb. How does man show his hatred and his enmity toward God? The word of God tells us in the book of Exodus chapter 5 and verse 2. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Who is God? Who's the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know him. Why should I bow to him? A heart that is deceived, dead in sin. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Have no desire for God to rule over them. In John chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, the scripture says, When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, the Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover. And about the sixth hour, he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest replies, We have no king but Caesar. Oh, how many times have our hearts said the same thing? Do you think we are any better than these we've just read about from Scripture? Are we any better than Pharaoh? Are we any better than those who imagine a vain thing? Are we any better than Pilate who knowingly carries on a kangaroo court against Christ? And are we any better than the high priest who said we have no king but Caesar? I have to be honest with you this morning. I identify with them. Do you? That's what I was. And apart from God's grace, that's what I would remain. Oh, how wicked my soul is. Good moral people will not bow to the sovereign Christ. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. And behold... One came and said unto him, Good master, 
What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these have I kept from my youth up. What like I yet? Now here is a young man that we would like to be next door neighbors to. This is a young man we'd like for our daughters to date. A good man, a moral man. Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So as you look at the scripture, you see what the wicked do when they are confronted with God. We also see what good moral people do when confronted with God. Apart from the grace and mercy of God given to our soul, we will always walk away. We will not bow to God. What good thing must I do? We want to be able to brag about what we've done. The man lived a good, clean, moral life, but he had an issue that he wasn't even aware of. He was a covetous man. And he was not even aware of it. Are you aware of your sins this day? Are you aware of your sin nature? Jesus did not come to condemn us. Scripture points out that we are condemned already. Think not that I've come to condemn the world. He that believeth on the Son is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. We are born condemned. Because of Adam's sin. Well, why will I not believe? Verse 19 says, And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. This darkness is moral and spiritual darkness. In what way do I have a moral and spiritual darkness? Well, the prophet Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 36 and verse 26, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. 
Why will I not come? And how desperate is my moral and spiritual darkness? It is so bad that my heart, as though it were as a heart of stone, does not feel. It's cold. It's indifferent. Because of this stony heart, moral and spiritual darkness, I do not want to be exposed to the light. Why? Because the light exposes my spiritual corruption. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You know, light, in this sense, causes a great pain for the entire being. You know, if a person has been in darkness for a long time, and then all of a sudden you expose them to the light, it's painful. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me ask you this. Now, those of you who are very, very young, you'll not get this, but someday, if the Lord doesn't call the world to close, you will. You get up in the middle of the night, it's dark. Your eyes are somewhat accustomed to the dark because hopefully you've been asleep for a while. You get up and you go into another room and you flip the light on. What happens? You're blinded for a while, aren't you? And it kind of hurts. If you look at the light, it's painful. When one who is wicked is exposed to the light, it is painful to them. And they don't like it. They don't want to hear what you have to say. If you believe sinners are out here just waiting for you to come tell them the good news of Jesus, I invite you when you leave this church this morning, just go out into the neighborhood knocking on doors and when people come, if they will come to the door, tell them you're there to tell them about Jesus and see what kind of reception you get. They don't want to hear it. They do not desire the light. This darkness is what they want. And because of the great pain, because that this light shows really how horrific we are. The only way to be rid of this pain is to continue in darkness, getting back to what we were. We don't want to hear it. First Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And a man who has the nature of Adam, when you tell him about Christ, he doesn't have a clue what you're talking about. 
doesn't have a clue. I have a niece that years ago, uh, we were at a family reunion out in California, and my niece was five years old. My sister was raised in church just like I was. But my niece was five years old. No, I'll take it back. My daughter was five. My niece was about seven. And we took her to church with us on Sunday morning. And as we pulled up to the church, my niece asked this question. How much does it cost to get in there? <laughs> Think about that. That's in America. That's out of my own family. The word of God means nothing to us apart from God giving us understanding. You see, this is my condition by birth and by practice. Yet, God sent his son into the world to save my soul. Verse 16 of our text says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who is this God? Who is he? Well, he's the sovereign creator, and there is nothing that exists outside of him. By his word, all that exists was created out of nothing. Now, there are those that through the years have wanted to argue with me about God and his sovereignty and after a while, those who, who know me may appreciate this and they may not. But after a while, I've had enough. And I look at them and I say, well, I'll tell you what. You show me the worlds that you spoke into existence out of nothing and I'll listen to you. Folks, we have a sovereign God. Nothing exists outside of him. He created everything. The scripture tells us in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's interesting. The very first verse of our Bible doesn't go about to prove God. It declares God. It declares him. In Genesis 1.14, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. John 1, 3 says, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth, according to Psalm 33 and verse 6. Psalm 147, verse 4, he telleth the number of the stars, he calleth them all by their name. Now, if you'll think about that, that is just an absolute mind-blowing statement. We look up into the heavens at night, and we see all those twinkling bodies. And there are many more that we can't see. And God has given them all names. In Job 26, verse 7, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. He hangs the earth on nothing. How powerful is God? 
How powerful is his word when he creates what we call earth and he hangs it on nothing and it stays on nothing because he said, stay there. Folks, this is the one who sent his son into the world. He sent his son into the world. He is the all-wise and all-powerful one. No one can upset his purpose or his plan. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 40 and verse 13 says, Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor taught him? In Isaiah 46 and verse 10 Isaiah said, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And that should give you hope if you catch that. Because he who will do all his pleasure sent his son into this world Amen. to die for sinners. I'll do all my pleasure. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In whom we have obtained an inheritance. Being predestinated according to the purpose of him. Who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Not only is he all wise, all powerful, sovereign creator. He's also a God of love. God sent his son into the world for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why did God give his only begotten son? Why? He gave his son to be the sacrifice for our sin. God had declared that he would restore what Adam lost in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We have the story of Abraham as he's ready to offer Isaac his only son. He takes his son up to the appointed place of the sacrifice. And on the way, Isaac says, Father, we have the wood and we have the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham replies, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. And John the Baptist introduces Jesus Christ in John chapter 1 and verse 9. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That is, he lifts it up upon his shoulders and bears it off. This one that God sent into the world. He so loved the world. Some want to argue about what that world is. I'll leave that to you to argue because we don't have time to go into that today. But he tells us that he loved the world and he gave his only begotten son. Jesus, the word was made flesh and he came into this world to suffer the penalty on sin 
or sinners. Let me ask you this. Are you able to suffer the just demands of the holy law of God and satisfy what God demands? Do you have what it takes to satisfy the violated law of God? You say, no, I want you to listen carefully. God has one punishment for sin, death. You say, well, that's not fair. God didn't consult us as to whether it would be fair or not. Who's been his counselor or taught him? He has one punishment for sin. It doesn't matter how great the sin or how minor what we call sin. Doesn't matter what the degree we might attach to it is. Sin is a violation of what God said. We go against God. You say, well, I don't really catch what you're saying here. Well, go back to the garden. What was Adam's great sin? He did what many of us do. He took a piece of fruit and he ate the fruit. In itself, nothing wrong with that, is it? There's only one problem. That fruit didn't belong to him. It belonged to God. And God said, don't do it. And he did. Oh, we need to understand who it is that we've sinned against. You know, I might decide that I don't like the looks of someone in here this morning and just walk up and slap you in the face. <laughs> or you might do it to me. Well, I'd be in trouble. But if I go out on the street here and I decide that I don't like the mayor of this city and I slap him, I'm in deeper trouble. And if I decide I don't like law enforcement and I slap one of them, I might not make it home. But if I go and slap the governor of this state in the face, I'm even deeper trouble. And if I go and I slap the president of the United States in the face, I'm in even deeper trouble. What's the difference? It's the same act, isn't it? It's who it is against. It is who I have violated. And we have violated the sovereign God of heaven's rules. Adam, don't eat. I've not sent my son into the world to condemn the world. We're already condemned. God sends his son into the world to save, not to condemn. Jesus came to suffer the penalty for our sin. God told Adam, the day you eat is the day you die. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Jesus 
is the only one who satisfies the righteous judgment of God's holy law. As the old divines used to put it, only God can atone to God for our sin. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing for us. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 tell us, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Galatians 3.11 tells us, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Death is separation. We see this in the punishment of Adam and Eve. They were severed from fellowship with God. And as time passed, their bodies decayed. And they were separated from this earthly life. When Jesus was suspended on Calvary's tree, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How can God forsake God? There's a separation. My mind can't get around it. But I do know this. It satisfied the law of God. God saw of the travail of his son and was satisfied. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Well, the question is then, since God sent his son into the world to die for sinners, would every human being be saved? The scripture is clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth. Some want to say it's not limited. It is limited. It's limited to those who believe. Not everyone will enter into heaven. Dr. John Owen, in his work in the death of death and the death of Christ, put out a syllogism in it, said either Christ died for all of the sins of all men, which means all will be in heaven, or Christ died for all of the sins of some men, which means the elect will be in heaven. Or Christ died for some of the sins of all men, which means no one will be in heaven. But someone objects and says, yes, but a man must believe. Well, is unbelief a sin or not? If it is a sin, either Christ died for it or he didn't. And if it isn't a sin, why do men perish because of it more than any other? When Jesus died... He died even for my unbelief. He took care of all of my sin. What love. What love the sovereign God of heaven had for my soul. 
dying for me, the likes of me. How wicked, how vile I am, and yet he died for me. Even my unbelief. And at the age of 17, he revealed himself to me, not just religiously, but revealed himself to me, opening my eyes to him. Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. Paul and Silas were imprisoned, and the earthquake comes, the doors are open. The guard assumed that everybody had escaped. He was ready to fall on his sword, and he was told not to harm himself. And he brought Paul out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Apart from the quickening by the Spirit of God, we will not believe. I want you to listen now. Why will we not believe? Consider the difficulty of what we are being asked to believe for these reasons. This Jesus was arrested. He went to trial and was found guilty. He was crucified as a common criminal on Golgotha's hill. He was buried in a tomb. And the report of the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders of the Jews were, the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus. Given those facts and the fact that I've never seen anyone come back to life that's been buried three days, it's impossible that this can be a good and true story. The natural man cannot believe this. Why would I believe such a tale? Because it's not a tale. It's the truth. Jesus died and was buried and rose again for my justification. But I cannot and I will not believe that apart from the quickening of God's spirit. Yet with the impossibility of the natural man to believe what Jesus said to Nicodemus, there are those who will believe. What is the cause of some believing while others go back into darkness? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45 says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 tells us, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. John tells us in chapter 6, verse 63, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. 
In Jeremiah chapter 31, the latter portion of verse 18 and also verse 19, Ephraim has walked away from God in the latter portion of verse 18. The statement is, turn thou me, and I shall be turned. And 19 says, surely, after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh, I was ashamed. Yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. How can I know that I truly believe in this one that God sent into the world? This God who so loved the world that he sent his son. How can I know that I have truly come to him? Well, John 6, 37 is instructive in this. It says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Verse 21 of our text says, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. If truly you have come to Jesus Christ, your life will be different. Your life will be different. Now, if you just come to religion, if you come to a theological position, you can continue on the way you were and feel good about yourself. But if you truly come to Christ, there is a change that's made in your life. You will follow Jesus Christ before you could only walk in darkness. Now you walk in the light of Christ in his teachings. Before believing in Jesus Christ, walking in righteousness was non-existent. Now righteousness is made known in your daily life. Why the change? It's because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you've never come to Christ, I invite you to come to him. Come to him. Don't come to religion. Come to Christ. Salvation is not in a doctrinal position and salvation is not in any religious body. Salvation is in a person, the son of God. Bow to him. Follow him. Confess your sin to him. And cry out unto him for his mercy. And I love what the scriptures tell us in the book of Exodus. When Moses said, show me thy glory. And God said, you can't see it. But I'll put you in the cleft of a rock and I'll cover you. And I'll cause all my goodness to pass by. And God put Moses in the cleft of the rock and covered him up. And as God passed by, that hand was removed and Moses looked and he saw just the trailings of God's glory, the backside. And he saw that God was merciful and gracious. 
He understood that he is the keeper of mercy for thousands. He is the one that has mercy on sinners. And I, for one, am very glad that he has mercy on sinners and that he sent his son to die for sinners because that's what I am. My hope is not that I've spent years in the gospel ministry. My hope is in Christ. Where is your hope? Come to Christ. Because God sent his only begotten son into the world to save sinners. I trust that God will take these few remarks, use them to be a help and encouragement into your souls this day. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.